0: Fualcha, 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 Gale, and welcome to episode 100 of the Rebel Matters podcast. As usual, I am your host, Anne Little Caroline. I'm recording this introduction from West Belfast, and I don't really know where to start today's episode because it's mad to think that we we'll have got 100 episodes of the podcast under the belt. This is the first episode. In the last five weeks, the 99th episode was with Harrison Gardner and we got an absolutely class response to that episode. So thanks very much to everyone who got in touch about the episode with Harrison. In the last four weeks or so, I have been navigating the reopening of our personal training facility in Cork City Centre, Ackley which is why there has been a bit of a delay in getting the 100th episode out and I also wanted to do something a little bit different for this landmark episode so instead of me getting someone else into the hot seat the mic was turned around and for this 100th episode my long-term friend Dara Graham did a little interview with me at uh, the house in Cork. These days I am living right next door to Dara and Jess and their two kids Lily and Theo and their massive dog Gibson. I moved down there next door to them in December of last year and all throughout the lockdowns and whatnot that we've had since then we've had a bit of a bubble on the go and We just thought it would be class to sit down and have a wee kind of chat. It's kind of one of these chats where when you're listening to it, you're just sort of like a fly on the wall listening to a chat that we might have just have had otherwise. Which whenever I'm doing the interviewing are always amongst my favourite episodes of the podcast so far. So it was nice to do something a little bit different for the 100th episode. We covered quite a lot of ground and it was a pretty relaxed conversation. So I hope you like it. Before we get stuck into the chat with Dara, I just want to say a massive and very genuine thank you to everyone who's contributed to the Rebel Matters podcast over the course of the last four years and over the course of the last 100 episodes. The guests, the people who have helped out, worked on the show, designed graphics and offered words of support and encouragement during the challenging times that have been a part of the Rebel Matters podcast at various times during the last four years and an absolutely massive thank you to everyone who has ever supported the show on Patreon and a special shout out to all of the current supporters of the Rebel Matters podcast who are no doubt keeping the show on the road. It's funny that how at the most challenging periods of the Rebel Matters podcast journey that A wee message always seems to appear on Instagram or through Patreon, someone who has listened to a particular episode who got something valuable out of it or someone who just messages to say that they're listening to the podcast and they're enjoying it. It really makes a massive difference and is a very valuable contribution to the Rebel Matters podcast journey and the support that the people over on Patreon have been giving the show has genuinely kept the Rebel Matters podcast going if you want to become a supporter of the show yourself then head over to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters where you'll see the various tiers of support that i've set up there and that's it so thanks very much lads i can't believe that we're after getting to 100 episodes Uh, i remember at the very beginning the goal was just to do five or six episodes and see how it went and it's still on the road And that's thanks to everyone who has contributed and supported the show over the last number of years. I'm really looking forward to making the next run of episodes. I have one or two interviews already recorded. But as I was saying, I wanted to do something a little bit more personal and a little bit different for the 100th episode. So I hope you enjoy this one. And I hope you're all keeping well. And uh, get in touch through Instagram, Twitter, Patreon or the Rebel Matters website, rebelmatters.ie, where you'll also find all of the rest of the episodes. Anyway, enjoy this wee relaxed uh, chat with Dara Graham and myself. The conversation just picks up where we are discussing how long we've known each other for and how we became to be friends in the first place. So that'll give us a bit of context for what is to come. So, buenas tardes. Before the pandemic kicked off and we were running around telling everybody it was our 12 year anniversary. Oh yeah. Remember that? I do actually. (laughs) Somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So this must be the 13 year anniversary. Tell you now, it was 2008, so that's 13 years. Cool. Yep. The first time that we got chatting was you came over and asked me, was I able to play, did I play a couple of tunes in UL? oh and yeah you yell, and you came over and we're like someone told me you play a bit of trial do you and i can kind of play the flute and then we played tunes that night and
1: that you, was it i asked you over to my house
0: yep that was in 2008
1: and here we are recording a podcast Absolutely. i have never done uh anything like this before so um excuse me <laughs> <laughs> don't mess it up um anyway let's start at the start and tell me, so you were born in Belfast?
0: Yep, I was born in nineteen ninety five in Belfast, and grew up in West Belfast. Yeah, with my two brothers, Carbra and Nisha. Nisha is also known as Muggley Bab and NECAP and Carbra is currently training at Tipperary Ireland team. Yeah, tip for Liam again.
1: Cool. Yep. And um, what was life growing up with the two of them?
0: Uh, well, there's only two years between me and Carbra, so we were in some ways we were kind of like what I imagine what it would be like to be a twin in a way we are just doing all the same things all the time Mm. wearing some of the same clothes (laughs) at times as well and did you have bunk beds? we did have bunk beds I was on the top bunk and he was on the bottom bunk and I remember when we got the bunk beds like absolutely buzzing when we got the bunk beds in that's it? yep (laughs) (laughs)
1: And then along came Nisha.
0: <laughs> There's nine years between me and Nisha, is there? Yeah, and yep. Yeah, so, yeah. That what, what's that, The that best was, thing about Nisha when he was born was you could bring him out for a walk and you got loads of attention from girls when you were pushing a pram around the block. Oh, yeah. They'd come over like the way when you have a dog, yeah, and people come over. And I haven't got a dog. Uh, would you like one? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> or would you like another Nisha? Uh, uh, I struggle to look after myself most of the time. Never mind trying to look after a dog as well. But someday I would like to have a dog. Someday,
1: uh, if you were to choose a dog right now, what type of dog would you get?
0: What well, big scruffy one? Yeah. yeah, just big, like bit rougher. India just probably a rescue dog, maybe. Cool. Mm. S- someone who just wants to hang out.
1: I suppose then, friend. growing up, like you had very different relationships between your two brothers then, because obviously one's not in your age bracket and the other one is.
0: Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, like, Nisha, we were always kind of hanging out together and stuff. And Nisha will remember this, but when we were up about, like, say, it would have been about 12 or 13, 14, 15, we we're all playing FIFA upstairs. Nisha would come in and, like, demand his turn hmm. on the computer, even when he was small. And we would obviously not want to give him a turn <laughs> a lot of the time. So then he would go out of the room and come back with a big, massive plastic sword and start baiting all around him until he got his go. How did that go down? <laughs> we well, mostly had to give him a turn. We did give him a turn, but then, uh, then I was away at UL for a while. when I was eighteen, and I was in living in Limerick, and at that time, Nisha was like about ten or something like that, and um, then yeah, sure. Then he kind of grew up, I suppose, fending for himself in Belfast for a lot of time because me and Carver were down in Limerick, mm-hmm. and sure. We're all the best. Who's yeah, who's the I don't know, do do, 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 do between the three
1: of you? Like you're the oldest, I suppose. So who what roles do the three of you kind of just naturally assume? Or is there <sighs> That's a that, hard question. Yeah.
0: Um well I don't know really. We're all kind of pretty much on on equal foot, and I've probably found that like over the years I've tried to not be tried to be less bossy.
1: Hmm.
0: Over the years, you know, from... So yeah, that's really hard for you, is it? Pretty hard sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like, when you're the oldest, like, you're calling all the shots. But then, obviously, like, when the people who are younger than you are, like, adults or, like, can make their own decisions, when, even when their kids, like... Mm. Then maybe time <coughs> to stop being a bossy bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think, actually, just in general, the older person in a family naturally has a different role or, you know, maybe from their parents actually when they're growing up they might have been treated a little bit differently which naturally um, results in their personality or their kind of elder sibling type role
0: probably in a way but, but I suppose there's only two years between me and Carver so it wasn't as much of a thing there although just talking about the bunk beds I remember when we got the bunk beds and we were picking who was going to be on the top leg and I got to pick huh. so I suppose there are decisions like that along the way that you maybe get a little bit of a uh, preference on yeah um, but yeah, we've got a pretty good relationship. Actually, three of us. Very, we've got a very good relationship. What I'm talking about, and uh, I think that's just because we all kind of just respect each other. And.
1: Yeah. What was life like growing up in your house?
0: Yes, we were all speaking Irish in the house, and there was the, the like political climate at the time was very different to what it is now. Like, we were I was 13 whenever the Good Friday Agreement was signed, so there was like, still the Brits were still on the street, and there was still things happening around, around the place. That probably had an impact on no, that had an impact on everybody's life really at the time and still does but um I don't know it was good like we were just mad into the hurling and stuff and played for some balls and we were up there a good few nights of the week playing around if we weren't up there we were at the council ground around the corner from the house mm. pucking around and um, having fights and doing things like that yeah normal so things.
1: would you be it was your house kind of a house that you would just go home to and you would be out and about all the time or would you be at home
0: a lot more or what way was that? Um, well, we went back to the house after school and we had to do our homework and then we'd have to do an extra bit of reading a lot of the time and then we'd have to play some tunes and then we'd be good to go. So when you said, have to, have, that have to read
1: and have to play tunes.
0: Yeah, our mum was a librarian, so the reading was like essential from day one. Really? Like your, your school books, and then you had to do an extra bit of reading after that. A different book that she would have brought back from the library, like or we picked it ourselves or something. <coughs> and then you'd have to do, if you were ready to go out, out the door, like with the stick, you'd have to play 10 minutes tunes. It was like the pass. Really? Dig it out,
1: yeah.
0: Jesus. Just under oh. the front room, bang out of couple of chains and then you're we good to go. All three of you? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Together? No, not together. All right. uh, separately. <laughs> yeah. Or together. I mean, it doesn't matter. As long as you got them done. Go away. Yeah.
1: And what kind of books would you choose for you? Uh,
0: well, at the t- at the start, like, there would have been well, kids' books at the beginning. Like, we're just...
1: So what age did you start doing this?
0: In primary school. Like, pre- oh, yeah. proper... As soon as we could read, really. Really? Yeah. And then... for me anyway as I got a little bit older as I was coming into my early teens I was asking for books that were more kind of political and I suppose that was kind of partly me trying to get a sense of what was happening around us Mm. and I wouldn't say that that was the beginning of it because we were exposed to it like in our day to day lives and um, we were exposed to it through being around our parents and things that they were involved in in the community as well and from watching the news and but I suppose it was the beginning of the sort of independent independently trying to figure out what was happening Mm. around us and trying to make sense of it like I remember at the beginning when I was asking my mum could we get some books that had got to do with the conflict in the north and at the start she was a bit resistant to it now I suppose the resistance was kind of futile because the house was falling down with those books anyway (laughs) because our dad had loads of them in the house Mm. and then but then I just remember speaking to her and she was like okay look we'll bring you back these books that you're looking for and around about the same time I started listening to Christy Moore hmm. and got a got a sense of a lot of the things that had happened around about that time or sooner and we like learned started to learn more about the hunger strikes on Bloody Sunday and the different things that Christy Moore sings about even listening to Back Home and Derry and Michael Hatton that was written by Bobby Sands when he was in jail yeah. and Though that was kind of the beginning of the more political kind of awakening of like independently as a as a young person at the time. So what age was that? Probably thirteen, fourteen. Th- maybe 13, less, 14. 12, 13, 14.
1: Interested in politics.
0: Well, you st- like for us, like it wasn't like the way there's a diff- There wasn't like the way that some people might see it now, where there's like ordinary life and then there's a complete separation and then there's politics and some people are invo- interested in politics and some people are interested in other things that have gotten on, got nothing to do with politics. It, it wasn't really like that and in many respects it's still not like that mm. for young people growing up in places like West Belfast because you're so inextricably linked to what's happening around you and that the, the politics of the place is a part of day-to-day life. Mm and uh, especially back then it was so for me as young boy i was i suppose like the way that any young people are you're trying to you're trying to figure out who you are and you're trying to figure out where you're from and make sense of your environment Mm. and they were the things that were happening in our environment in real time it's not like it was like a a historical interest Mm. so even though that might seem young now like looking back at it or for someone who wasn't exposed to that kind of thing, it wasn't for us like politics. Would be like if you think about someone who is in the West Bank or something like that, mm. who's a kid <laughs> and they're, they, they're they're aware have to become aware at a very young age of what's happening around them to try yeah. to make sense of it. They're kind of similar to that, in, in, in some respect, I suppose. Mm. What's the biggest misconception you think people from say down south might have of? Northern Ireland, life in Belfast. Well, one of the early things that we would have been aware of is that what was happen- what was being reported on the news, on the TV, was a lot of the time very different than the way that we perceive things to be. Mm-hmm. And because we were living in it, we were able to see that. But for people in the South who, aren't, who weren't living in it and weren't exposed to it in the same way that we were and would have been largely dependent on the stories that they were getting from the media, mm. the biggest misperception as far as I can see by a good long shot was that what was happening in Belfast and Derry and the six counties in general was that Catholics and Protestants didn't like each other for religious reasons and that they were basically killing each other mm. for that for that purpose. And that that was more got to do with I suppose the spin that the British government were putting on what was happening. And um, that was in many ways supported by the government in the 26 counties and by the media here as well so that was the biggest misperception that i would that i seen anyway and the first the most i've mentioned this before in the podcast but the biggest sort of realization about that was whenever i went to limerick first when i was 18 i didn't know anybody and someone who was after becoming friends with on in freshers week on the first day we we're just running about i was wearing an lim- uh, Andrum jersey and he was wearing a limerick jersey so we we're thinking we're sweet here mm. the, the, the GA yeah. people from GA background whatever, we're in the same class and stuff so we were running about with each other for the first couple of days and then he came over to me and says to me here that girl over there is a Protestant you must fucking hit her do you and I couldn't believe it because it couldn't be further from the truth that yeah. any of us would ever have anything uh, against anybody for their religion or anything else yeah. got to do with their lives, you know whereas that was that uh, that was at the time and probably still is to a certain extent pretty prevailing um attitude or perception about what was happening in the north so so that 's the perception, but what 's the reality then well for us, like the reality was that we were being discriminated against on a lot of different levels, you know if you look at the community that we came from. And the levels of um, discrimination in employment and education, and housing, and infrastructure, like for the community within the areas, yeah. all of those things were very present in a very real way. And that hasn't got anything got to do with where you go to mass.
1: In comparison to say my youth, uh, I didn't have to think about you know what was going to come down the road in an armored car, or I didn't have a those kind of situations going on around me that you would have had because of the troubles up north. How do you think that might have shaped who
0: you are now today? I'm sure it did have an impact, but like I don't like everyone has, everyone ends up having a unique life experience that Mm. I suppose shapes who you are as an adult and going forward and stuff like that. Um, Like, it, for, for growing up in a situation like that it's not like it wasn't like unusual for us so it's not like we were plucked out of a different completely different environment and then put into the environment that we did grow up in like yeah. you know so um, I think the more positive things that, that I carried forward from the experience of growing up in West Belfast was the uh, strength of the community that we came from and um, people's ability to set things up uh, independently to look after each other and yeah I suppose that they're, they're some of the, the, mm. the most positive things you know we also we came from the, the Irish language speaking community in West Belfast which is like thriving now in many respects and that came out of a situation that where it was just you're know, like getting trampled into the ground mm. in terms of the,
1: your, the, your mum and dad. Would have been
0: pioneers in that area in West Belfast, would they? There were definitely Irish language activists within uh, the community, and they uh, were involved in quite a few different projects, along with other people who were from the community as well. It was very much like a sort of cooperative environment there about getting to get the infrastructures that were required right. for to, as the foundations of the Irish language community now. I would like that, but I suppose like they were carrying on the work that was done in the generation before them the people who are you know like 15, 20, 30 years older than them and then the next generation now is coming through and Mm. then the next generation is also coming through Mm. you know people who have come through the schooling system and uh, added to what the previous generation have done Mm. that's the way that's the way it's working like was you were telling me before about the school that uh, your dad was it your dad set up a school or well when we were in primary school around about the time myself and Carver were in primary school um the Manskull Farage just started in the Colterdan which would have been set up by um, the people of our parents' generation um, people who seen the need to, st- to have an Irish medium second Irish language medium secondary school in Belfast for all of the people who were coming through the primary schools mm. like at the time like there was only two primary schools in Belfast the one that we went to Manskull Farage which I think was set up in 1972 or 74 or something like that and uh, Giel Skull mm. on the Falls Road and now there's Loads, loads, um, loads of Gaelic schools, like primary schools that are doing education through Irish. But as we were all coming through the Irish language primary school system, at the time there was no secondary school, mm. so people got together and and set that set that up. And I think the school opened in ninety one or something like that. And I was going there in 96 so it was four or five years on the go by the time I got there I think there was about maybe 70 or something like that people's in people or something mm. along those lines and we were in the Calderland on the Falls Road along with the, at the Cafe Glass which is a restaurant and Caripoli the bookshop the theatre and a few small kind of enterprises that were all in the Calderland at the same time and it's pretty squashed. Like we were getting squished into smaller rooms every year because the rooms were being divided to put another classroom into <laughs> it. And at a the time there was no official state recognition for the school. So uh there we were campaigning like around the clock to get to get the like the, the the teachers and the people who were on the board of the school were campaigning around the clock, but then we had a very active role to play in that as well as the pupils in the school. Oh, yeah. And eventually then I I think it must have been around uh 1999 or something like that, the school got official state recognition, which was been after the Good Friday Agreement, and we all moved all the stuff from the school in into land Like, we literally carried the chairs across the road to Chak Art where the school is based now, and carry, we're like, chair on your head and walk across the road and then come back and get a table and bring it across. Hmm. Everyone did that. It was in, I think that was in, um, just before Christmas in n- 1999, I think that was, hmm. and... The school is there now. It's got unbelievable facilities. Like it's one of the best schools around, and it's also home to the Lake Rock Lake, 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 Lake Rolock Lee GA club, which is a new the new GA club and on the Falls Road. Well, it's new it's gone it's gone while, but the club has just established there in the last number of years, and everything's done through Irish there, which really is a testament to all of the work that you know, like hmm. everyone who has contributed to the development of the Irish language. Community in in Belfast Mm. has done going back decades, and the work that the people are doing there now as well. Uh, When you
1: are living down here, obviously, uh, you're probably not able. You're not in a position to speak as much Irish as you might like. Do you when you do speak Irish? Are you aware of it? Like,
0: do you enjoy it? Are you proud of it, or is it just something that you just do? Um. Yeah, it's definitely, like, Irish. the Irish language form is a very important part of, so like, what I identify with, yeah. you know, like, my identity as a person, and it's a very important form of expression for me, like, being able to express yourself <laughs> in your, in the language that you grew up with and the language that you speak with your family and mm-hmm. a lot of friends as well. So, um, it is important, and I do love speaking Irish, but, like, there are, like i have plenty of opportunities to speak irish down here as well like when you think i think about all the people who come into the gym and are speaking irish they just come in and do their training away in irish if, if i'm working with them mm. or the consultations so um do you dream in irish or english i don't know you don't remember uh, your dreams I, I remember them but i just don't know what language you're speaking could be either yeah. maybe it depends on the person if the person who's in the dream can speak irish yeah. like if i was dreaming and someone who can't speak irish in real life was speaking irish in the dream, I would probably notice it yeah. more.
1: Moving on to your podcasts, this is going... Um, this is your 100th episode. Why did you start it in the first place?
0: I don't know, just to start it for the crack, like really. I just started it so, so I could sit down with people. Like, you were on the sixth episode, and I remember when we recorded that episode about four years ago, I remember the chat that we had, that I was getting the opportunity to sit down with you and ask you questions that I never asked you before, mm. even though we had known each other for... Like eight years or something at that time, Mm. so it just kind of stemmed from that, really. Like, and just being able to reach out and speak to people and connect with them on a personal level, and then also, like, hear what people are doing, give people the chance to share their own stories. Just that's really what was behind it. Like, in Mm. 100 episodes now, like, I've got a lot of people who I would consider to be friends with. Now, you know, after when you sit down with someone for an hour and you're chatting to them, and kind of having a bit of crack or whatever. Yeah. And especially good just through the, time, the pandemic times. Like the first lockdown, I was doing one or two episodes a week for, for a while there. Mm. And I was in the house by myself for 10 weeks, so it was a good chance to, to like, still get to meet new people in a way.
1: Yeah, I was, just, I was thinking about it where I was wondering, so like you might get someone on as a guest and they might have a story to tell. So that's the story, but then there's the person as well. And do you treat the person... Uh, like are you as interested in the person as you are the story that they have or do you ever kind of through the chat that you have with them find out another story that you didn't know existed and then that becomes more of the chat than the initial reason why you got them on or how well how does the the whole chat develop when you when you do it because you've done it so many times now
0: you see the first Chris Minturn, I think, was the first person on the on the podcast, um, a triathlete and really sound guy from Cork. And if he wasn't the first, he was one of the first. And I remember recording that one in Ackley in the gym, and we recorded it in the ladies' dressing room, like, which is miniature. It's a tiny lick. And at the time, I remember thinking, okay, we're going to go squeeze into this wee room. We'll bring a wee table in, and we'll set it up, like sitting right beside the shower. And I was just thinking to myself, that's going to be the quietest place to record this podcast and the, the silence is essential so i was kind of really caught up in like the environment like trying to make it really quiet and getting this sound quality as good as it could and having these like questions where i kind of set out some questions like this is this is what i'm going to ask him and this is going to be the format of the podcast mm. and i remember when i was doing a bit of research about how to go about setting up the podcast at the time i remember reading somewhere someone said like if you look back at your early episodes and you're not a wee bit embarrassed about how you did them then you're not, you're, you're not after walking the right path with your podcast like if you're doing it the same way as you know like 100 episodes in if we're doing it the same way as we were doing at the very beginning I would say that was probably a missed opportunity and when I think about how I do the, do the podcast now compared to how I did them back then which is a bit more rigid and was a bit more sort of like worried about the background noises yeah. like first of all now I actually don't mind a bit of background noise from time to time like I've recorded a few episodes outside like walking up the side of a hill or something like that and in some ways that kind of adds a bit of ambience to the yeah. to the experience but it the podcast was always about connecting with the people yeah. and Kind of having laugh people and doing you know, like talking, being at a conversational format. Mm. And that has developed a lot since the very beginning. Whereas before it was like, these are the questions. And once I've asked, asked them this question, I'm going to ask this question and then this question. And then really what was happening there in a way, like in retrospect and with the experience of doing it about 100 times now, <laughs> it's like for me, the important thing is to not try and squeeze the guest into a box that I have predetermined for them Mm. with the questions Mm. and it was more about just um setting each other up to be able to talk about whatever it is we want to talk about in a more free free flowing way so that i think has lent itself to being able to get to know people better during the during the chats and um end up going down directions in the conversation that i wasn't able to foresee at the beginning you yeah. know, like if I ask someone a set of rigid questions, they're going to answer those questions pretty much by and large. Whereas if it's more open, yeah. we might end up talking about something that they didn't even know existed. Right. That that person is up for talking about. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I so do. that's kind of how it's developed.
1: Yeah. I'm just kind of thinking now for myself here right now. <laughs>
0: like squishing up here. <laughs> what, what should I questions? do now? <laughs> <laughs> so how's it going so far? This podcast? Um, yeah. It's pretty good. It's a... It is unusual to be on the other side right. of the... Two-word check-in. Two-word check-in. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Do you like uh, being on the other side? Or do you prefer... I'm conscious whenever I'm doing interviews all the time, not just this one, but in general, that um, that I'm sort of like being... Like, sort of true to myself the way I'm speaking, and I'm not like talking through my absolute hoop. I remember one time <laughs> that I was. What? You? <laughs> you? I was did an interview with Dahi O'Shea uh, for the telly, and yeah, uh, as off. you know. And and you were hiding behind the pillow watching it. <laughs> I was hiding behind the pillow <laughs> when I was watching it, is right. But straight away afterwards, I was going camping up in the mountains in the cameras, and I just remember sitting up there thinking. Did I make an absolute easier of myself? Did I say something stupid? Did I say something that someone that knows me very well is going to see and is going to be like, that's bullshit? Mm. And I suppose that level of sort of self consciousness just kind of comes with the, f- the fact that you are sitting, talking for an extended period of time, ask, answering someone else's questions. Mm. Do you or think? Talking off the
1: top of your head. someone sticks a microphone. Like, we have had lots of shots but we've never had a chat like this before because, well, literally there's a microphone in front of each of our faces. Do you think just by doing that, it actually changes
0: the way someone might talk? or In know. a way, that's probably something that I've been sort of conscious to work on, on myself over the last hundred episodes, over the last number of years of the podcast. And that's another thing that when I look back at the... The chats and the, the early episodes, especially the introductions of the episodes, like I listen, I can't really listen to them because I just listen to it, and I, what I hear in my head is this like pretend podcast voice, mm. like "Hey, <laughs> welcome to the Rebel Matters podcast, everybody." Like that's exaggerated, but that's what I hear in it's my not head. Really no, I know what I mean. Th- that's the way it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another thing that has developed over time. I suppose my ability to be a bit more at ease when I'm talking yeah. into the microphone, not being as conscious of it and just, I think that that is connected to being conscious of connecting with the person yeah. at a time and being present with the person yeah. rather than having these set of questions that it yeah, yeah, you're yeah. just trying to squeeze the person into. Yeah. I've got a feeling you're going to ask me loads of, loads yeah, of questions. I'm just, just going to do, do exactly what over. you would not
1: do. Okay, go for it. Well, um, uh, You don't have to expand on many of these questions if you don't feel like it, but you can if you want. Okay. Uh, I'll start off uh, wine or beer?
0: That's a hard question. Um, it's not. <laughs> wine, probably. Beer is nice, but sometimes you just feel sort of a wee bit bloated after it. But Beamish also, which isn't the technically beer. Yes. Fine. Okay, Beamish. wine or beer, stout? Ooh. Uh, it depends on the time. Like okay. Beamish, out in a pub, sitting in, sitting yeah. like down in a pub with someone, kind of Beamish. <laughs> if... Um, Sitting in a house, bottle of wine.
1: Cool. We got to the bottom of that. Um, most influ- influential person in your life.
0: Jeez, I don't know. I actually think that that changes from as you move through your life. Well, uh, at, at the time, yeah, but at in, the
1: time. Oh, from from zero to thirty-seven, six. <sighs> there has to be. I one. don't know. Like a few. I
0: don't know. Okay, sort of. Someone like, in the top ten. Like our parents like is very very influential mm-hmm. so I find it that would be the thing that would come to mind first and carbonisha, they're all family, yeah. they're all their like immediate family and people that have sort of learned a lot a lot from and uh, enjoyed spending time with and sort of being able to learn from by the very nature of them as just being themselves yeah you
1: know yeah favourite thing to unwind
0: favourite thing to unwind enjoy it whenever we play a couple of tunes together mm-hmm. it's a very unwinding sort of activity and a leg like lying on the floor over there and listening to the records yeah just right behind where you're sitting
1: do you do you lie on the floor much
0: yeah quite frequently lie on the floor do you
1: yep cool um, what is the first thing you normally do in the morning and the last thing you do at night
0: have a cup of coffee is the first thing usually and then I do Line the floor, stretching yep. on the floor there you go yeah <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I've, I usually try and get to play a couple of tunes as well after that and then the last thing at night time is a reading a book reading oh yeah
1: two Dur- reads every night
0: Dur- yep cool. reading Derval Murphy's book at the minute uh, on a shoestring to Kur- Kurg and she went to India with her five year old daughter uh, in 1973 or something like that or 1970 in the early 70s yeah. anyway it's class
1: to do something particular, just traveling, just going traveling, around, seeing things. Derville yes. Murphy
0: is a legend. Derville Murphy's like books are class. Highly recommend them to anybody. She's got a few, hasn't she? She's got loads, loads of books. Yeah, she's actually got two books about Palestine: And um, month by the sea, as the one where she went to Gaza, and she's got another one where she went to the West Bank. Why do you think Palestine is a?
1: It's a draw for you, and why do you get stuck in there?
0: Um. I don't know, I just I suppose like we always just felt this sense of connection with the Palestinians through our own experience in West Belfast, and the first time I went over there was out of curiosity to see like, what it was like over there, mm. and how much did we have in common with the things that were happening in Palestine, that was in 2018, and um, it just kind of grew from there, you know, got, I made some friends over there, and sort of... Seen a lot of the common things, but like you, you don't you don't have to be coming from a place of conflict to see what was, what's happening over there and and you know, like becoming becoming involved in it. Like mm. even though you go over there to Palestine and you hear you're Irish, there's automatically this sort of like common ground where they're like they feel that we've been through similar experience in this country, yeah. like not just in the north, but like in in the south as well. It's not that long ago from the time that we were in the war of independence in the South as well. And um, that's maybe a good starting point, but really what's kept me involved with things in Palestine has just been the friendships that have developed. Yeah, because like,
1: you know, there's other groups of people that are struggling for their own independence in in different parts of the world, but you've kind of been drawn towards
0: Palestine as opposed to those other groups. There is a lot of support for what's happening for the Palestinian cause. I think because of the fact that there we have through our actions in this country like we can directly impact what's happening in Palestine and there's not many other mm. conflicts in the world where we have that amount of um, the, potentially that amount of power over what's happening over there and like the, the, because of the fact that um, Israel is supported us so strongly and like Without question, by America. And we're like a sort of a consumer society, and a lot of the products that we're buying are from companies that are heavily invested in Israel mm-hmm. as the project and everything that they're doing over there. And there's a lot of companies that sell, there's a lot of Israeli companies that are selling their, their goods in mm-hmm. Ireland. So mm-hmm. that's like a direct thing that we can do. Like, So I think that it's also because it's so blatant. What's happening right there to the Palestinians hmm. maybe that's why I can relate to it and maybe why a lot of other people can relate to it as well hmm. uh do you enjoy
1: that activism or is this kind of just an inner drive that you want to just help or what way do you i i would, I would, I, would
0: think I would never see myself as an activist um
1: or anything like the last time I saw you standing at the standing up in the back of a truck speaking to a few (laughs) hundred people in Cork for a Palestinian protest that was pretty active
0: well like how would you view that then the way that I would see it is if you've seen something that was happening and you're walking down the street that you were in a position to do something to stop to help stop it then you would just do it you wouldn't be an activist then you would just be human I don't know like it's just something that's there and it's not it's do you know, like something that's happening that's really wrong, and if you have the opportunity to do it, like if you're in this in the cir- circumstances in your life where you're in a position to make a co- positive contribution to a mm-hmm. struggle, then um, that's good to do that, like you know. And for me, like it's important not to have these like separations but, like the Palestine and like women's rights and LGBTQ rights and. The rights of different people around the world, because ultimately like like workers' rights ultimately like they're all rights they're all related, like you know what yeah, I mean, yeah. so it's important to to stand up when you have the opportunity to do so, mm. I think, but um I mean, like personally, I don't see myself as an activist, I guess, in some ways not to say that there would be anything wrong with that,
1: yeah, but. I know what you mean uh, and it actually kind of ties into probably something that you have as just by your nature which is instead of like a leader activist type role you I suppose operate more on a community and you're kind of pulling people in around you and kind of everyone's on the same playing field or the le- same level and you're kind of trying to you kind of naturally create a bit of a community. Um, which doesn't really have a leader, it's more of a group of people that have the same kind of goal, maybe or, or are
0: together for the same reason. I see about seven or eight years or something like that there. Like, I just remember thinking to myself one day, like, might as well be spending the time working on things that I kind of believe in or things that reflect what I value like yeah. and I do value like the connection with people and um people doing things together and i think that that like is re- much very much related to what we're doing in actually like in terms of it in terms of like it being a place where people are coming in to work on their health and like one of the main ideas behind actually is that like health isn't just about fitness like <laughs> a lot of it has got to do with your how connected we feel to each other mm. and to the environment that we're in And I suppose that's just an extension of that, really. It's a very fortunate position to be in, to be able to to work in areas that I feel are just sort of extensions of myself or the things that I value.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's sort of a privileged position to be in, in many ways, because it's not always the case. No, for sure.
1: You were saying there that, you know, health isn't just
0: about... Oh, it's not just about fitness. It's about, like, other things, like bringing people to... Like, how you're connected, you feel to yourself and to other people and for me it's like got to do with not just about like what we eat but how we eat which is why we started the long table lunches years ago and so so
1: just broaden that there how we eat like as in eating with people and socialising is that what you're on about there? yeah yeah
0: and what like elaborate there so so sure well we've been doing this thing me and you and Jess every Friday since the December really where we've been coming together and eating Together on Friday night like and yeah. just sitting there and sharing food together. For me, like the sharing of food is as important as like what you're actually eating. Yeah. Because you're getting a chance to speak to people and you like talk about your day and mm-hmm. even when you asked me the other earlier on there about what's the two word check in, like that came from the thing the Friday nights where we were meeting up on a Friday evening and just checking in with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's I think something that's lost in many ways when, when we think about food as it relates to our health. The most of the conversation is is uh, concentrated around how many grams of fat and carbohydrates and yeah, yeah. Uh, protein are in the food as opposed to the makeup as opposed to like how you're cooking it and where it's coming from and like how you're yeah. eating it. Then and how many people are at the table? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So how many people are at your long tables? Um, there was about thirty or forty at the last one, which was pre pandemic. Hopefully, maybe have another one this year at some stage, but. Um, so, like the last time I remember, the last one that we had, I think was outside in the in the car park of the gym, and there was a good few people came up and they were like, "Right, where can we pay?" Yeah. And like I was like, "There is no there it, there is no pay. Like it's not about money. Like they're like, but well, sure, can we just like pay, yeah. donate or something?' And for me, like the whole concept, if it is doing something that doesn't require money, like and yeah. it doesn't have doesn't like there's no, it's about something completely different. Yeah, than that. Yeah
1: one of my questions was going to be for the, fa- the quick ones was if it was your, uh, your last meal on earth before you had to get the electric chair <laughs> what would your, your last meal be but maybe I should rephrase it and say how would you describe your last meal
0: yeah I was going to have a last meal if I had the choice I'd just get loads of people around and would just have a big, a big party mm. and keep it going for as long as possible And <laughs> think there is time
1: yeah. <laughs> you had a tough year with your mum it was um like incredibly tough. Um, you didn't you just, you had to get through it while actually there was a pandemic around. Uh, how was how are you
0: finding life now? In uh, relation to that, I suppose anybody who's had a shock like that, where the f- something really suddenly has happened to change the course of their lives, or, like um like I've kind of said it before, like it was as if someone just got a deck of cards on the 29th of September last year and f- fucked them all up in the air and it, all the cards were floating about in the air and they were all the different pieces of my life that were like before that and stacked up yeah. relatively neatly on top of each other. And um, so then we was spent a bit of time up at home in Belfast with uh, family and friends up there and that just whatever way it worked out, we were fortunate enough that we were able to have people over to the house and around us in Belfast for those couple of weeks when we were going through the whole process of uh, our mum's funeral and wake and everything like that and then the aftermath of that. And um, so I don't know what it would would have been like if we had have been up there and weren't able to spend a bit of time with friends and family and get the support that people were providing for us when we were up there and then um i suppose like you just have to at some point start to try and pace your life back together again yeah. and for me that involved coming back down to cork and we were in a lockdown situation then when i came back came back down to cork that would say up until only a, a few weeks ago really well the last few months I suppose but the the gym has only opened in the last few weeks and um, I was just kind of trying to adjust to that and like it was a big move for me coming down here living down here beside you guys because then we had this little bit of a support network and we were meeting up every Friday and seeing each other Mm -hmm. on the regular which was good so that was uh, another thing where it's just be hard to imagine what things would be like now had that not happened Mm, like I
1: presume I, I don't actually i can't say i presume i'm just imagining that when you go through uh like a grief as extreme as that would be it's is it a journey of you know it it, does it get easier or is it just a constant or is it what way does it work i suppose maybe everyone's different as well
0: well the way it was for me was the initial finding out um Really suddenly that our, our mom had taken her own life was like an explosion. Mm. So that was immediate. Like you, you obviously you're not you're not expecting. It. It's not as if like you were expecting it for a few weeks and then it happened. It's just like immediate, <coughs> turning upside down of everything. So there's that, and then um, there was the getting up to Belfast and starting to organise things up there, and then someone actually funnily enough one of my friends from Belfast handed me a book by John O'Donohue. it was Anamkara it was a really good book and uh, there's a I was reading it in the house and I just sectioned on it about, about dying and death and I just went straight to that section which is towards the back somewhere and the way that it said it in that book was that like grief is not like something that comes and then it just goes away someday mm. there's more like a tree that grows up that grows alongside you for the rest of your life Mm. and then it's sort of a case of um, you know like growing with that tree mm. you're sort of like intertwined with it and suppose like the way that I see it just kind of trying to get to the place where you're able to carry that w- not like not as if it's a burden but that you're sort of more like a dance
1: mm. Where do you where do you think your mum is now? I don't know. Yeah, or do you ever think of people that have passed on? Do you think do you what happens? Do you think? Oh, well, do you have any thoughts on it?
0: I think that say our mum lives through through us. Yeah, you know the people that her her me and Cara and then the other people who she was in contact with in her life, like her family and stuff. Yeah, I suppose, but like I really feel her, her presence through me and through Carvanisha. Yeah, very um, strongly. Yeah. and I've spent more time playing music since she died, and whenever I'm playing music now, I kind of feel like that's a little bit of an extension of her as well. <laughs> so that's the way I would say it. And um, I suppose it you know, seems to be fairly for me a straightforward way of looking at it without having to try and solve the mysteries of life yeah that that's I can see the link strongly there like you know she uh,
1: she would have been the one that kind of gave you the the gift of music yeah yeah Um, and she played
0: concertina wasn't it yep did you ever pick that up the concertina yeah and I have got one of her concertinas here. There's a couple of notes that are not working on it. Now that's not the reason why I didn't pick it up. But I've really focused on just the playing the flute more and learning more tunes. Yeah. Carbra has got the concertina that she had oh, yeah? that she was using her main concertina, and he's after lear- learning loads of stuff on it. Class, yeah, he's at her picking it up.
1: Um, and did you did you actually play it together? Like say all of you together play? Trad at home? We did,
0: No, we didn't really play together that much. Funny enough, uh, just I suppose. I'd, like whenever I was a teenager, like I was just too caught up with the hurling, and I really wanted to play hurling, and mm. it, it was sort of like a little bit at odds with the music, in a way, and I t- didn't play for a long time, and I do remember my granddad when he would call the house the Flan and he would ask have you played are you playing any tunes these days and I'd be like nah I'm just playing hurling training all the time and he's like well he's like just remember like you can play hurling for a while but you'll be playing music until you die like, and mm-hmm. even despite that like not having played for a long time the thread still was there you know, mm-hmm. the thread still continued mm-hmm. so I'm very grateful that we did have that in our lives when we were kids and um, very grateful that I was able to pick it up and reconnect with it and especially now that I've playing in a way that feel quite present with her. Yeah, yeah, Which has made it even more meaningful for me anyway.
1: Yeah. When I've, when we became friends, you were absolutely obsessed with Harlan. You still are, like, but at the time you were training, you were playing for Antrim? Yep. Up and down the road twice a week from, yes, from Limerick to Antrim, it, to Belfast. Some weeks, twice a week, yep. And you went, you were injured, you had a lot of injuries, and then you were trying to, all sorts to try and get it fixed and then you ended up going to Australia to try and get your injury fixed? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, so like for us, for me anyway, hurling was the, hurling was the main avenue of self-expression and like, it, I don't even know if I realised it as much at a time but like it was just so important in my life. Mm. It was like, we're... Pretty obvious. We grew up <laughs> in the, in the club like and made friends for life from like the pe- with the people that I was playing with whenever I was 10 years old and um, yeah it was just an avenue that we went in that we went down that I literally don't know what my life or Carbone's life would have been like if we hadn't have gone down that route and in many ways I would feel that we that I was raised not just by my mom and dad and the immediate family but sort of by the community mm. and the club or GA club like was a big part of that community mm. that, that helped to, to raise it like when I think with the coaches that we had and the people that we were becoming friends with and also the people who were a little bit, little bit older than us that were, that were kind of guiding us through and the people that we looked up to like yeah like like when you were playing uh you
1: know you were fairly you were very driven and there would have been um very like you would have had your goals and you would have wanted to achieve those goals. So looking back now, like you, you don't play competitively anymore. Do you have any regrets about your
0: training life and your, your Hurling career? The thing that I think that, whenever I went to Limerick first in 2003, one of the main reasons I was going down there was because I wanted to play Fitzgibbon Hurling. And one of the main reasons I wanted to play Fitzgibbon Hurling was de- to develop my own uh, game and my own skills. But also because, like, I'd been playing for Antrim the, the whole way up from when I was under under fourteen, and we were constantly coming down south and just getting hammered all the time. Any of the matches that we played, like, um, under fourteen, under sixteen, minor, under twenty one, rarely beat any of the southern teams. And the I was conscious of not uh, sort of falling prey to sort of like a victim mentality that we were just not good enough to compete in the south. And I always believed that like, if, if, I, if we did the right training and we had the right setup, and if I was able to get into the right environment that I would be as good a player as anybody. Mm. And that's how come I ended up going down to Limerick and did play fitzgibbon hurling for four years down there and then end, eventually ended up coming down to Cork and playing from the Piercy. I think that that, that drive as well is somewhat connected to uh, the sense of identity that we were being denied yeah. in Belfast because of the amount of discrimination that was going on against our community. Yeah. What and was it,
1: you, just a little side note, you told me a story once where you were playing hurling, a helicopter landed in the field, was it? Yeah. And you started pelting it with slitters?
0: The helico- like the, <laughs> ground, the council ground beside our house last moment, like the heli- helicopters would have landed there regular enough, like or p- foot patrols would have come through very regularly anyway, and sure, if you were there, should the thing through was just a try and target practice hit the soldiers and I actually hit a soldier on the head with a slitter one time and uh, he was in full combat gear like, and he had a machine gun so it's not as if it was uh, he wasn't under any major threat but he threw the ball away and never got it back <laughs> but <laughs> bastard um, anyway so I think that that drive has got some, some, some somehow connected to, to where we grew up and all that there and I just loved playing as well I don't have any regrets about the training or the time that I spent travelling up and down or the amount of time or energy that I put into it but the one big learning thing that I did get from it and I suppose it comes from uh, like getting getting a little bit older but also going through the experience of having sort of like a long term injury is that I just came to realise that I had tied up a lot of my sense of self-worth in hurling and a lot of my identity was tied up as in being a hurler. Yeah. And I think while I'm delighted about every minute of hurling that I played, with every minute of it, I did came to realise that tying your sense of self-worth up in one activity or one thing that's sort of external is a very fickle thing, it's a very fragile thing and that that can have a really serious knock-on effect on, like, your your mental health yeah. if all of a sudden you're not able to do that thing anymore. And um, that, I suppose, sent me down the path of, um, you know, I suppose, reconnecting with things that we would have had instilled in us anyway mm. as kids and, and brought up, we were brought up that, like, your sense of self-worth is intrinsic. It's not based on something that you're doing externally. And... I think that that was um, a very valuable lesson.
1: Mm. Yeah, like um, the one thing about hurling and its competitiveness is that, like, for when you were doing that, and if I used to look at you now, like you're not a competitive person at all. You're the opposite to competitive. But then, yeah, like when you were hurling, you would have been extremely competitive because you know that's your ball. You're going to win that ball.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, like hurling is a form of expression, like and it's kind of an art form, yeah. you know. So it's not all just about the competition, even though like it, it is competitive, obviously, when you're playing at that level, and winning is an important part of it. But I actually think that. Um, did you think that when you were playing? Though you think that now,
1: but did you think that? Um, would you have called it an art form when you were playing, or was you you were you more driven
0: as a as a competitor? I would have seen it both ways. Would you? Yeah, I think so. yeah. But but the the thing the difference is though that, that I that I equated my sense of like self worth with how well I was playing or or like what level I was achieving yeah. in the game, which is problematic more so than the competitive environment. Yeah.
1: No, I can remember if you had to buy a bad game or if you got an injury, you were pissed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember that. <laughs> like if, if any any game like. Any time, like I would have went off, after any game, I would have went off and sort of analysed it on quite a deep level and tried to get the lessons out of it. And and in ways now, maybe looking back now, is maybe trying too hard to to make it happen, which can be a a resistance, a cause resistance then to actually get into where you want to go, I think. Yeah. You
1: mentioned identity a few times. What is your identity at the moment? That's a tough one. To be honest...
0: That's harder than wine or beer. The things that I'm involved in externally, the different projects... Um, that I'm involved in, like I really try not to associate my identity with those things because well so, so you look, what are they then? Like the podcast and yeah, no, the I gym don't. And but if you're to group the gym, the podcast, your 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 whatever other else what, what do what do you call those things? I don't know. Just, just projects things that they're yeah, projects or things that I'm doing because I like doing them. And mm. um uh, partly like I partly don't associate my identity with those things in that way because of the fact that like the might like the internet the internet might just stop someday and then the podcast is gone and that doesn't mean that I am gone like or Mm. like the pandemic kicked in and the gym was closed down for six months or something like that doesn't Mm. mean that like I am less of a person because of that Mm. but I also don't associate my identity with those things too strongly because I'm conscious of not allowing those things to become ego driven mm. that they're the, the podcast is about connecting with whoever sitting down chatting the way that we're chatting now and the the gem is about just creating an, an open and inclusive environment where people feel safe that they can come and you know like mm. spend time and um, stuff like that and enjoy their time there and I think that allowing those things to become really driven by ego and that they're that making them making them essential for like sort of feeding my personal sense of identity I think would be a negative have a negative impact mm-hmm. on the real purpose of them as I see them.
1: hmm Anything else that you would really like to, to do in, in the podcasting world?
0: Um wouldn't mind like doing to- more live podcasts and like I think there are a lot of good things happening in Ireland uh, at the minute from an artistic point of view, like the people who are um, involved in really cool projects. And I think that there are a lot of people who are breaking out of the mould and calling out behaviours that have been accepted for quite a long time. I say, for example, in the creative industries in terms of... um, you know, like sexual abuse or intimidation or lack of opportunities for people who are discriminated against like, mm. I think that there's a lot of cool projects of people speaking out about that and breaking out of that mould and I would like to think that, that that's having a very positive impact on the creative industries in Ireland or the different creative areas like in music and stuff like that and it's class to be able to hear more about those things Mm. and um, be able to contribute in a positive way to that cause. So who are you talking about? Just in general. I think that when you look at the different campaigns that have gone on, like the Misha Foster, and um, there's more visibility for people from the trans community, and I think there is a lot more Avenues for people to speak out about experiences that that, that they've had, mm-hmm. that have um, had a really negative impact on their lives, and um, that they're bringing attention to to those things and things that things that might not have things that might have gone under the radar before, like before the age of social media, or you know, like before people felt that they were able to speak out mm. by things that have happened to them. So I really like seeing that and hearing that that's happening mm. and i like doing the pod, live podcast as well actually pretty cool yeah i haven't done many of them I've done a few of them and uh it's nice to have that bit of kind of interaction with people who are uh, sitting in the crowd yeah and um brings in an, an extra element although like it's a kind of a different thing really than sitting down with someone the way that we're sitting down now when there is an audience Yeah, slightly different but it's just as just as much fun like so yeah. i'd like to see the podcast developing into different areas like that there and would you do another hundred Ah, Well, sure, the way I just keep doing them until I feel like not doing them anymore, but any time that I've thought about maybe just stopping the podcast, I've just looked back at the last while and seen the people that I've got a chance to sit down with and people that I I can call up and have a chat with now that I've met through the podcast and the doors that it's opened and even being able to sort of like doing the ones over in Palestine and being able to speak to people over there and it's just kind of a good way to... I mean it doesn't like it's it's better work to do the podcast episodes and stuff like that there and especially now like trying to juggle them with trying to get actually off back off the ground and organising the next trip to Palestine and stuff it is like definitely something that like the more the podcast goes on the more conscious I am of making good quality podcasts like sound quality that the content is good and then you just spread it out there so people can hear it all takes time but for me like it's worth it because uh it's we just have a good time doing them mm. so the face-to-face is did you miss that yeah for the pandemic we we're doing them on zoom right. we're starting i've got a few more face-to-face ones coming up actually the the two naris are going to be the 100th and one one hundred and first one hundred and first episode yes. and that was the first face-to-face one that i did in a good while which was really good recorded in, in the gym and uh, we had a good crack doing it Kay. so I mean definitely prefer doing it face to face but at the same time like with technology like you're able to do podcasts with people who are on the, on the other side of the world and opens up a lot of doors that way like
1: yeah totally.
0: Yeah, what's your take on social media do you like it or dislike it uh, like if it wasn't for the podcast and the gym and the project in Palestine probably like I wouldn't really be on social media I don't use Facebook hardly ever anymore yeah. and only still have it just because you need it to be able to use the Instagram pages properly but um, I think that's actually very powerful when you look at the recent attacks that Israel were doing on Gaza that that really spread through social media platforms and people were able to get nearly real time access to what was happening on the ground over there so I think that that's a very powerful thing and I would I suppose despite the podcast if the podcast and the gym weren't there I probably would have some form of um, social media account to keep up to be able mm. to keep up the speed with that there and you're not dependent on the stories coming through on the main news sites mm. you're, you're getting it like from the ground nearly but then for me like the the disadvantages are that it's social media is like highly addictive and you see especially when I've found this in May whenever the bombings were happening in Gaza and I was helping to organise um, a couple of demonstrations and stuff like that there in Cork, and trying to keep up the speed with what was happening, and then answering people's messages and stuff like that. It is highly addictive. Like it's made to be addictive. Like that's they've. That's the whole point of it. Like that you're. It brings in and the way that it's the structure of it and the way the logos and the scrolling. Everything's made to be really user friendly and keep the content coming so that you're engaged in it for longer and longer. And I think when you you couple that up with something that is so, like, sort of, like, you're emotionally invested in, Mm. like, of a campaign that's happening or trying to keep up with what's happening in Palestine, then I think that we just need to be careful that we are able to, again, separate ourselves from it to recover because it can really take over your, your whole mind. And for me, like, those kind of online campaigns personally the way that I see them is that there's a time when you sort of go to the front when you like walk up to the front of whatever's happening and you engage with what's happening head on yeah. and you can do that for a particular amount of time and then you have to take the opportunity to step back again yeah. and recover and like recharge the batteries before you go back out to the front again because yeah. it's really easy to just become sort of like a victim to just like always being at the front and just getting worn down yeah. until you're just completely worn down, yeah. and then what happens next after that? Like, it's like yeah. the Instagram's not going to occur. Yeah. That you're, yeah, it's good way you Like you're, that you're completely beat. Like so you have to kind of look after yourself in that way. Like, mm. uh, it's like especially like with the stuff with Palestine. Like it's like that There's trying to keep up with what's happening. There's trying to answer messages, and then there's the being out on the on the street or whatever, and then trying to relay that back in. Mm. Through the social media channels, mm. like a full cycle, like and you can really get caught up in it. Like, and it's not saying it's a bad thing because I think that it's very powerful. Yeah. And there, there comes a time when, if you're in the right place, in the right state of mind, in the right situation to be able to contribute to it, then yes, sweet, yeah, Just like, I like happy to put all your weight behind it. Yeah. But then there's a time when you sort of like retreat a wee bit as well, look yeah. after other things in your life. Yeah. Just what's your advice that you would give anyone? Drink enough water. Drink enough water. there you have it, lads? <laughs> <laughs> Good luck.
1: <laughs> that's it, that is it.
0: This episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was presented by me, Anna Harlan and produced by Vicky Langen. The Rebel Matters podcast is 100% funded by our followers over on Patreon, and we are very grateful for that support. If you'd like to become a patron, then you can find us on www. Patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters where you can see the various tiers of support that you can choose from. Every single bit of support that we get here at the Rebel Matters podcast means a lot to us and really does help to keep the show on the road. Anyway, that's all from me this week. So Gajan Keterella, Akarja, Slangofoil, August Kenyfire.